you're tuned in to Dialogues on AI Digital Pathology. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to medical and industry experts who will be sharing their thoughts on the evolving trends of AI Digital Pathology and its role in finding effective treatments for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, also known as NASH. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. A very good day to you and thank you for joining us on Dialogues on AI Digital Pathology. I'm your host, Cynthia, and I'm happy to bring you this special episode to explore key takeaways from the recent FDA webcast on NASH drug development, which took place last month. The webcast discussed areas from biomarkers to treatment efficacy, and one of the points that stood out was a statement by the FDA that AI digital pathology was an area of interest and that they would be open to discussions with sponsors about its use in their NASH clinical trials. This is indeed significant as biopsy-based histological endpoints continue to be critical and relevant in the current NASH clinical trials. To discuss these key takeaways, we are very happy and honored to welcome our panel of guests, key opinion leaders in liver pathology, who will respond to a selection of questions sent in by the pharma companies and clinical investigators, and also share their experiences involving histological endpoints in NASH clinical trials. We believe their insights will be useful for NASH treatments awaiting approval. This episode will be released in two parts, with part one looking at questions relevant to clinical trial strategies with AI digital pathology following the FDA webcast. Part two will be released soon after part one and will see questions relating to histological assessment. We are also very pleased to welcome our moderator for this discussion, Dr. Nikolai Nomov, Advisor for Clinical Research and Drug Development in Liver Diseases at Novartis. He will be introducing our panel and bringing this conversation forward. Welcome back to our podcast, Dr. Nomov. It is certainly great to have you back with us this time as our moderator. Hello, Cynthia. Thank you for the introduction and for inviting me to be the moderator. I would like to congratulate HistoIndex for organizing this podcast focused on histological assessment of liver biopsies in NASH, which is the gold standard for evaluation of disease evolution and treatment response. It's our pleasure, Dr. Nomov. Now, without further ado, I'll pass the baton over to you. Take it away, doctor. Thank you, Cynthia, and greetings and a very good day to all our listeners. This podcast will be of interest to all those involved in developing effective therapies for patients with NASH, and it follows very timely the recent and really useful webinar organized by the FDA. Histological evaluation of liver biopsies in NASH trials has an essential role, firstly to ensure eligibility for enrollment in the clinical trial, and secondly, to evaluate the treatment response. I'm very pleased to introduce our panel of top experts in liver histopathology. Professor Pierre Bedosa, Professor of Pathology at the University of Paris and currently consultant in liver pathology at Liverpath, 
Paris in France. We have Professor Zach Goodman, Director of Hepatic Pathology Consultation and Research at Inova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia, USA. And we have Professor David Kleiner, Senior Research Physician and Chief of Postmortem Section, Laboratory of Pathology for the Center of Cancer Research at the National Cancer Institute at Bethesda, Maryland in the USA. Welcome to this podcast and thank you to all three of you for your participation, for sharing your opinion and expertise. At this junction, I would like also to acknowledge all those who have sent in questions that will be the basis of the discussion today. We will begin with part one of the podcast where we will look at questions that are related primarily to NASH clinical trials. So here is the first question to our panel. Professor Bedosa, Goodman and Kleiner, being involved in NASH clinical trials yourself as liver pathologist, what did you think about the guidance on the development of new therapies for NASH provided at the recent FDA webcast in general? How would you rate the practicality of the information on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being very unsatisfactory and 10 being very satisfactory? Perhaps uh, Professor Bedoso would like to start? Yes, um, thank you, Nikolai, and I would like also to thank Histo Index for the kind invitation. I would say, and I would rate this webcast uh, in the middle, I would say uh, a five on a zero to 10. A five because uh, well, there are good new things, such for example, the use of digital pathology, and uh, of course, uh, use of liver biopsy in clinical trials, which seems to be uh, the present and also the future, at least for the uh, coming years. But there are also some points which have some somehow leaving me a little bit uh, without answers. I am meaning of, about the issue of observer variability, the reading plan, etc. I think we will have uh, time to discuss all these points. But as I said before, I would rate it five. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe we move now to Professor Goodman. What did you think about the FDA webcast in general? Uh, yes, and I also want to thank Histo Index for inviting me to be here uh, and participate in this. As far as uh, rating it, I, I would give it a little bit higher than five. Uh, I, I uh, think it's admirable that uh, the agency has identified liver biopsy as the uh, gold standard by which everything else will have to be judged. And I was also impressed by the fact they said they were willing to evaluate data that's presented to them using other modalities, but it has to be strictly done in a, in a strictly scientific way and with um, great attention to process validation and showing that these things are actually measuring what they say they're measuring and then comparing them to the gold standard. So uh, not, not just saying, well, isn't this great? The computer's doing it, so it must be right. You know they're not they're not uh, willing to accept that, and the same is true with all of the other biomarkers. So, I uh, I thought that was a, a good uh, aspect of it. The details about how to do it, um, I also uh, was pleased to see that they were not going to insist on anything. They said that this would be up to the sponsors to come up with something, as it's always been, 
and then to present it to them ahead of time. I think they want to pay more attention to that than they had done in the past so that they might not be uh, caught short after a, a long development process finding that they don't really have the complete answer. So I would I would give it up uh, perhaps a six or a seven or an eight, some depending on how many of those aspects we uh, want to take into account. Thank you. And I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Kleiner now to comment. I too would like to thank Histo Index for the opportunity to join uh, in this panel discussion podcast of digital pathology and standard histomorphology. I think that it is it's very promising that um, the FDA is keeping an open mind towards these things. I'm glad that that like Zach, I'm I'm glad that they're uh, still uh, focused on histologic change as a, a measure of success of a therapy and that they're open to you know exploring these these new avenues i think that you know with respect to issues like inter-observer variability i think that that's always going to be a question how best to minimize it until we get past that to a point where we're all confident in the image analysis tools so you know, I think it is very promising, and I guess I would I would be rating this somewhere in the more positive sense, the same way that uh, uh, Zach did um, a seven. Thank you very much, all three of you. And uh, after this general question, now it's time to turn to liver histology orientated question. So the next question is uh, FDA is open to use digital approaches such as the scoring of digital slides in clinical trials instead of scoring glass slides for assessment of the primary endpoint. Are there any disadvantages of scoring trichrome or methoxylin using stained slides when these are digitized? And a sub-question to this one is Mason's trichrome and to some extent, H&E could be inconsistent stains. Uh, what is your opinion of using label-free virtual stain techniques instead of H&E and Masons in the context of clinical trials? So who would like to be the first to this question? I can do it, Pierre, if you, if you like. Okay, Pierre, um, thank you. You're a brave person. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, to me, uh, reading slide on digital images is exactly the same that if you like on glass slide. If you start from a slide which is uh, nicely cut, nicely stained, then you get a nice image and you can uh, get exactly the same result. We have a, a study which is not published yet, which shows that the variability uh, when reading twice the glass slide is exactly the same than when the reader looks first to the glass slide and then to the digital images. So it does not increase the variability, uh, intra-observer variability of the reading. So to me, it's, it's really uh, similar in terms of the quality. You can modify contrast, luminosity, the gamma, etc. So if you have a high quality screen, this is perfect. For me, and probably for those of my generation, it's probably a little bit difficult and it is probably less practical than to have the glass slide. It takes a little bit more time, but uh, I would say that with uh, 
working on that for, for now several years and having done some uh, Nash trial on digital images only, uh, I would say that it is it's good because uh, we can do that from anywhere and living outside uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, I, I can do that, uh, do my report as quickly as uh, my friends of in US do it because you, have, you don't have the risk and, and of uh, shipping and the lost and problem of, of, uh, of transfer of material. So practically, and uh, the quality is, is to me uh, exactly the same. Uh, regarding the second question, I have to say that I have not a lot of experience of that. I have seen a few images of uh, uh, label-free virtual stained techniques. Looks to me okay, but obviously I did not have enough experience to answer definitively to this question. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. And perhaps Dr. Goodman, would you like to follow with your answer? Um, well, I, I want to be a little bit more measured. You know, now, Pierre said, you know, when you have a really good quality last slide, you can get a really good quality digital digitalized slide out of that. True, but a, you know, a, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And I have seen absolutely abysmal stuff come over the internet to me for my reading because care was not taken at every step along the way. That if you have poor quality sections, poorly stained sections, poorly scanned sections, not cleaning the slides, there are so many problems in that that I would not go wholeheartedly in, into uh, trying to change over to using digitized slides for anything unless you've got uh, certainly plenty of backup. Uh, it is possible to get very good quality digitized slides. Uh, and, and, and even I'm even though I'm in the older generation, I'm not alone. I've, I've talked to plenty of young people who hate you looking at digitized slides also just because they take so much longer. But uh, I, I would uh, say that, you know, if you have a dirty slide and they digitize it, you're just going to have a dirty digitized slide. But if they send you the glass slide and it's dirty, you can clean it, you know. <laughs> And, and you, you can make, and, and when you use your microscope, you can focus properly, even if the uh, scanner that was used didn't focus properly. I've seen that as a problem. So I, I would be a little bit more measured in that. It's possible uh, to have equally good slides, and uh, if you take great care with it in the course of your clinical trial, that will work. But if it's a multicenter clinical trial with slides coming in from all over the world, uh, you will find them processed in all sorts of different ways, stained in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes you have control over the staining, often not, and you can do a good job or you can do a poor job. I think one, one thing I've found is that I can, with my experience, I can sometimes take a slide that's not optimal and still make the assessment that's needed from it. So I would uh, say it's possible, but we'll, we'll just keep that for uh, future reference. And any comment on the virtual stain, if you have experience, Dr. Goodman, on that? Um, the H&E uh, is a very forgiving stain. You can do things a lot of ways, and it usually still turns out well. The Masson stain is not a forgiving stain. It has to have properly processed uh, uh, tissue. Even so, you can often tell between the Masson and the H&E &E whether or not cirrhosis is there, if that's the question. Um, for the uh, label-free virtual staining, you know, I've seen the histo-index uh, uh, examples. I mean, sometimes you can tell just by the location, but the nice thing about stains is that if they're done properly, 
they differentiate between different uh, features that uh, I don't see how you could do with without some way of marking it. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Kleiner, now if you could comment on this question. Sure. Um, so I guess with respect to the first question, uh, using digital slides to do reads, um, I you know the quality control is an issue. So I fully agree with Zach on that. You know, it's it's digital taking taking pictures actually makes things. I guess harder to see because that the the way that a camera works is not quite the same way as the way that your eye works and so the color representation isn't exactly the same and so it would take some getting used to and and those kinds of issues I think you could get around the problems with focus and dirt on the slide and and sometimes the ability to focus up and down on a on a particular cell or a particular area can be very valuable one of the things that we have noticed during this pandemic when we haven't been able to gather as a group, the NASH Clinical Research Network pathologists have been doing things online and trying to, to read slides as a group over the web. And uh, so we have a, lim a certain amount of limited experience in this, but one of the things that we looked at was a comparison of slide reading over the over the web, which is, you know, again, it's a camera representation. It's not um, not exactly the same as a digitized whole slide image, but it's very similar um, with the added advantage that you can focus up and down, or at least the driver can, and show show things to, uh, show things of particular interest to the group. Um, unfortunately, what we found, at least in our initial um, examination, was that when you had that, that we tended to miss things, features that were of, um, how, how to say this, sort of borderline quality to begin with. So, so while I expected the noise of the second read to sort of be stratify the, the first read so that, you know, we would overcall or undercall um, the same number of things, we tended to undercall things uh, looking at the, the slides digitally. Uh, so when there was just a you know a small amount of ballooning or a small amount of fibrosis we tended to to underscore call things as zero or no fibrosis or no ballooning um, rather than giving it a positive score and we did that in a <laughs> unfortunately kind of a systematic way so so that my concern might be that on borderline cases if you had one observer looking at things um, on the glass and another looking at things digitally that there might be um, the, the the amount of noise might be the same but there might be a systematic difference in in the way that the scores were conveyed now we're trying to see what we can do to overcome that uh, what kinds of accommodations we can make uh, because it's likely that we'll still be looking at slides virtually for a little while but at least as a first go, we haven't learned quite how to overcome that that change. Um, with respect to label-free virtual staining, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't have any personal experience with it either, but I have seen publications, um, not necessarily in liver disease, but in other areas. Um, 
there are advantages to histochemical stains uh, differentiation. Even on eosin, uh, you get different shades of eosin on a, on a well-stained H&E that help you differentiate collagen from cytoplasm, um, from smooth muscle, uh, from red blood cells. And, uh, and those differences have to be reproduced in the virtual stain-free setting as well if you're going to get that same level of, of stain differentiation. Um, there are enough problems with uh, routine Masson stains that going to label-free staining might actually be an advantage because then at least you'd get something that was the same um, from one slide to another. Uh, but I don't have any personal experience with it, so it would be something that I would have to um, explore and, and test and, and compare to original stain sections before I could make a judgment. Thank you. So perhaps we can revisit this question in future when there is more data about the virtual staining and then broader experience on that. We move on to the next question now, which is um, focused on minimizing the scoring variability. And the question is that during the recent FDA webcast, there were a few suggestions for minimizing the scoring variability. And one of them was to train pathologists before and during the trial. Earlier work, which is published by Gori and colleagues from Wisconsin in, I think, 2010, suggested that the conventional training, for example, by reviewing a library of annotated pathological cases has little impact in reducing intra or inter-observer variability. The question to our panel is, based on your experience, what role can artificial intelligence-based digital pathology tools play in helping to train pathologists? How do you see such tools being deployed in clinical trials? So, shall we start with Dr. Kleiner, for example? Yeah, that, that would be fine. We can reverse the order. Thank uh, you. So the, so, the question actually has to do with using AI to help train pathologists, which I think is an interesting concept. You know, one one thing that you can do with AI and and uh, in other situations is use it as a as an immediate feedback training tool. Uh, so, if you were confident in the ability of the AI digital pathology to identify features, you could use that to train pathologists to set thresholds. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to imagine how one might use this in, in fatty liver disease, but I, I suppose that if you had somebody who was trying to diagnose ballooning, which is one of the, one of the challenges that we face, um, either trying to set thresholds between various scores or uh, trying to, if they're if they're new or they don't have a lot of experience, uh, maybe even just recognizing cells. And so you could use AI digital pathology as a feedback mechanism to train uh, a pathologist to better recognize cells, to discard cells that were of, you know, questionable value. Particularly if if one of the things that the the AI program could do is give you a probability, right? So uh, or a level of certainty 
So if you pick a cell or something and, and then the AI program tells you, oh, well, um, there's 90% certainty that that is a balloon cell, you can be confident, okay, that that's what that is. And then you could move on to other things and it might, you know, as you were training, as you were learning, you could become more comfortable and then you could go back to those training modules, if you will, um, before you you sat down to read a set of slides. So I think it's an interesting idea. I don't I don't know how it might be carried out in in practice, but uh, you know that sort of back and forth might be very useful in training. Thank you, um, Dr. Goodman. Would you like to give your views uh, opinion on that question? Yeah, um, you know I, I have grave doubts about the whole concept of trying to do away with uh, uh, the inter-observer and intra-observer variability. It's been demonstrated now for decades. It doesn't change very much. You can, uh, what, my, my, in my experience, you can take a small group of pathologists and a small group of slides and sort of train them to read those particular slides the same way. And then you give them different sets and with a little bit of drift and a little bit of time, they go back to whatever they were doing before. So uh, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about that. How would, how would you use digital pathology? Well, you have to have the gold standard, which is the pathologist reading of the slides. So let's say uh, you pick out something and uh, the AI says there's only 10% probability that this is really ballooned. Well, you still have to make that decision. <laughs> you know, Somebody has to say, yes, it is, or no, it's not, or go looking for better examples. So um, I suppose, um, in a practical sense, I'm not sure about for training, but that uh, if we if we had something that was really good at picking out the few balloon cells that uh, that might be present in in a case without very many, then that would certainly save the uh, reader time. Um, but uh, I, I I would really have to see the data to uh, come to the conclusion that it was really valuable. For other things, you know, for fibrosis, I think, you know, you, there might be um, some, some um, merit in using uh, uh, it could be AI or it could just be the more standard uh, algorithm uh, uh, to um, quantify how much fibrous tissue is there. The FDA has been resistant in using that as opposed to the simpler staging system, but that's something that could be addressed if, uh, if we had a large enough data set for them to evaluate and with enough uh, standardization. Uh, other than that, I can't really think of very much. And do you think the quantitation of the amount of collagen in the tissue in a sensitive method would be a useful addition to the architectural description and the morphological changes yes we've been we've been doing it by uh, perhaps less sophisticated means now for 20 years and uh, it gives you a different sort of information yes okay so and pierre dr bedosa your opinion on that question well uh, i would say that uh, uh, AI based digital pathology is surely useful to train but uh, to train uh, students rather than expert. I'm not sure that uh, uh, between experts uh, this approach of uh, 
AE uh, digital pathology would be useful to reduce observer variability because, well, uh, if you define uh, ballooned cells with 90% uh, probability of uh, it is a ballooned cell, I think that all expert pathologists will recognize uh, as it. But if you lower the sensitivities and you are not sure that it is, you know, the, the system will identify something that even both pathologists would doubt about the reliability. So to me, the, it will not change a lot the observer variability. From, from my experience, uh, I, I would say that the observer variability, inter-observer variability is mainly related to Uh, borderline cases and uh, the best way I found to to reduce of hopefully the variability is to discuss not specially on images but on concept uh, for example um, stage three fibrosis versus uh, stage four fibrosis what when do you say it's uh, stage four and when do you say the stage three how much nodule do you need for going from stage three to stage four, or how much septa you need from, for going from stage two to stage three. This is things that uh, I am asking every day when I'm reviewing slides. And so we, we know, I would say maybe 15 or 17 uh, uh, burning questions that already happens. And uh, solving that just by discussion of uh, with some, uh, uh, I would say accurate description would, would help uh, to, to diminish the variability. And this, this is usually, usually the way uh, when I'm, when, what I'm, I'm doing when I'm working with another pathologist. Thank you. We move on to the next question, which again deals with some of the suggestions raised at the FDA webinar. And another suggestion that was shared was to use at least two pathologists to read each slide. And if uh, discordant, then a third pathologist can serve as the adjudicator. How do you see uh, this being set up? And can artificial intelligence-based digital pathology tools aid the adjudication process to make a final decision? For example, uh, there is one sub question here that will clarify the point. Um, the use of digital tools, for example, like video assistant referee, is now common in many sports like football, for example, or similar in tennis to make a final decision in borderline cases. Can this concept be applied and facilitate the histopathological scoring in NASH? Who would like to take this question first? I'll go first. Um, this is Zach. Okay, uh, Zach, thank you. So, uh, you know, in, in, in sports, it's a matter of, okay, was it out of bounds or not? And you can replay that as many times as you want. Assuming the camera's at the right angle, you can tell, even if the referee wasn't at the right angle. So that, that that's really not the same as uh, what we're trying to do here. Like Pierre said, I, I agree. If you have two observers and they're there's a difference in a borderline case they just you know they can discuss it and look at and look at them once again together particularly with that if they've had time to forget what they said the first time 
and then just talk about it, and, and they'll come to a consensus almost almost invariably. I've only rarely had not had needed a third pathologist as an adjudicator in, in situations like that. David and I uh, did one uh, sub one of the uh, ancillary studies with the in the Halt C trial. David and I looked at a lot of old liver biopsies together on. Saturday mornings uh, to uh, come to consensus about what the previous biopsy had shown, and uh, came up uh, with a you know with a, with a re within a reasonable amount of time uh, consensus on on all of them. Um, so I don't I don't think that's really a, a valid uh, way to way to do it, and or a necessary way to do it. The FDA made that as a suggestion, but you have to remember that there's nobody in the FDA hepatology division who's an action, who's a pathologist who has ever read slide or, or has, has ever read slides for a clinical trial. So um, you know it's it's a matter of us deciding what to recommend. And uh, the the FDA document did not insist. They said they'd like to have the sponsors discuss it with them. So they put that out as a suggestion. But until that's been shown to be an improvement on what we already have, I don't think it's worth uh, investing a lot of time or resources. Thank you. And uh, perhaps Pierre now? Uh, yeah, well, um, I, I am strongly against the idea of a third pathologist. As much as you increase the number of, of pathologists, you increase the variability, you know. Uh, imagine that uh, Zach would be the pathologist one and uh, David would be the second pathologist. I will never agree to be a tiebreaker between Zach and David because uh, I, I'm not the one that could say this one is uh, for David and this one is, is for Zach. Uh, you need, if you want to do that, a super pathologist that uh, uh, I don't know where, where to where it comes from, but. This is this is not really the the way to to go. Uh, if you add a third pathologist, you just increase the variability. And I fully agree with the, the options that Zach suggests: is that having two pathologists and they have to be forced to get a consensus. And usually it works. They review the slide and that they they get a consensus. And finally, I would say that one pathologist is better than two pathologists, and two pathologists is better than three. So less pathologists you have, less problem you have. And if you have a single pathologist, which has a low intra-observer variability, which means he reads the same way the baseline, the first baseline biopsy and the last end of treatment biopsy, then since he is blinded to, to the trial, I think there is no problem. You don't need to, uh, if you need to add a second pathologist, then you can probably manage that in a different way and consider each pathology data separately, test them for uh, endpoints, and uh, if both pathologies, pathology data reach the endpoints, then you have a very strong res response regarding the effect of your drug. If uh, both pathology data, again, uh, tested separately, does not meet the endpoints, then again, you have a very strong information that your drug does not work. And if one reach the endpoint and if the other not, it's just that the variability of biopsy or pathologist is higher than the drug effect, and uh, that uh, probably the drug effect is, is marginal.
Thank you. And Dr. Kleiner now? Yes, uh, observer variability. So I, I basically would would concur with with Zach and Pierre. Um, I think, you know, even if you have, say, two observers and they come to consensus, if you actually ask them to do the same activity again, they might or might not agree with themselves again. And so then do you force the first, you know, so you could you could chase this endlessly, this this observer variability. Um, and it may not be always on the same case or the same instance, the same feature, uh, but you could still get different reads. So, so we read things in consensus in the network. We usually have about six people around the microscope. We find it usually very easy to come to a consensus, but that doesn't mean that six months later, if we looked at the same slide, we would necessarily absolutely agree with everything that we had said before. We we as a group have our own intra-observer variability, if you will. Um, so I don't think you can ever really get around that problem uh, as, as long as you're using human observers. And I think if you go to digital pathology, then the problem is the same but different. You get good, really good precision um, and good reproducibility, but you need to be sure that you're accurately looking at the, the right thing. Um, one. I would like to just throw out a new idea or an idea that I've been trying to promote, which is that when you, in science, when you have multiple observations, um, and, and this goes back to when I was taught analytic chemistry in college, uh, you don't pick the one that you like or one of the three. You don't try to force consensus. You use all of the data, right? So if you're doing a protein assay, and you do triplicates at each concentration, they're not going to be the same. You're going to get different different readouts at everything because you have error involved in pipetting and, and measuring and other things that are going to give you differences between those observations. But you don't look at the points that you've created, pick the ones that you like, or try to force some sort of consensus. You use all of the data. So there ought to be some way, if you're gonna use multiple observers, there ought to be some way to use all of the data because my feeling is that when you have expert observers looking at something um, and they disagree, that, that actually tells you something about the pathology. If it is between bridging and cirrhosis um, in a fibrosis stage, yeah, you're probably in that borderline land um, in that transition between something that is clearly just bridged and something that is clearly cirrhotic. And so that's telling you something about the pathology. Um, and we ought to be able to make use of that information uh, without necessarily forcing people to, to come con to consensus. But if you have to, then I agree with, with Zach. You get, you know, both of the people can sit down together, look at the same set of slides, um, and, you know, and just go through them and score them. And usually that works pretty well. Thank you, Dr. Kleiner. This is a very interesting point. And just building on that, um, am I correct in understanding from all three of you that the way you see the adjudication process is more by 
building a consensus through discussion between the two pathologists or how many pathologists are involved rather than by appointing a third independent adjudicator. That that would be my opinion, yes. And I agree so, also. Yeah. And Pierre? I agree also, yes. Oh, okay. Yes, and, I agree also. I'd like to also uh, go back to something Pierre mentioned about having, if you want to have two pathologists, have them each read the entire study, and if they both agree, then you've got two pathologists saying that the study worked. And I think you could expand that, particularly if you're going to use digitized material uh, that can be reviewed by a lot of pathologists, as David mentioned. So you could say uh, 8 out of 12 pathologists say that this drug works. And that's the important thing, not getting consensus on whether or not the fat score is 2, but getting consensus on whether or not the drug had an effect that the FDA recognizes as being a surrogate uh, for for uh, for approval. Is there improve is there improvement on fibrosis? That would be the thing place to get consensus. Or if not, at least you get the a number who give it a certain score, and then you can do statistical analysis on that. All right. So thank you all, and we move now to the next question which is, uh, do you think that in the non-distant future, the artificial intelligence digital pathology reading could be used as the primary endpoint, for example, for fibrosis improvement without worsening of NASH and how? Uh, Pierre, would you like to take well, the first? Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, that should be great, but to me, we are very far from uh, this uh, Point. We, we, we have several uh, approach for, uh, for, uh, for example, assessing fibrosis using uh, uh, AI, uh, digital uh, images, etc. But to me, and I, I wanted to say that earlier and forget it, there is something that we, we did not look before is the problem of sampling error. We know, for example, that for scoring a biopsy from zero to four for fibrosis, we need at least a two centimeter biopsy, which is optimal. If you increase the length, you don't have a more robust evaluation. If you decrease it, uh, your evaluation is less robust. But for all these approaches using uh, digital images and artificial intelligence, this has not been done. This type of study has not been done. It might be that the size of the sample we are using for the semi-quantitative scoring system are not enough relevant uh, for uh, digital images or uh, based on AI. Uh, we need to know how long a biopsy should be to use, for example, a morphometrical evaluation of collagen. Maybe it's uh, less than two centimeters, but my guess is that uh, as more as the uh, evaluation or the, the tool that is used for evaluation is accurate, as more we are impacted by the sampling errors. So before uh, using uh, digital uh, AI pathology, we need this basic approach and this answer to this uh, basic question, how much of biopsy we need for which technique? Thank you, Pierre. And uh, Dr. Goodman? 
Yes, well, um, there are two different aspects to this. You know, one is when you're looking at an individual patient, you want to get the right answer. But then when you're in a clinical trial, you want to find out whether the drug works. So with that in mind, you can use uh, morphometric methods, um, you know, to say whether this cohort did better than that cohort by taking the, the mean scores or, you know, the distribution that uh, you can if you if you can increase uh, well to de to decrease sampling error, you want to increase the sample size. So that could be more individuals in the study, or larger biopsies from each individual in the study. So I think I think it's it's possible. As far Thank as you. using it for the oh, final uh, answer, though, uh, that, that that that's another issue that the uh, FDA uh, uh, said would have to be approached with, from the point of view of data, that you have to actually present enough information that they can analyze it and see if they would accept that in place of uh, standard pathology. Yeah, and uh, the helpful point of the webinar was that FDA said we are scientists and you, the sponsors, are scientists, so bring us the data, let's sit together and discuss the results and decide what, what they mean. So and we need more data on that aspect. Um, Dr. Kleiner? Okay, um, I think uh, with respect to using AI digital pathology as a, as a primary endpoint, just to take something different from what Zach and Pierre said, I would, one of the things that has not yet been determined is um, if you're just going to use a, a digital readout, how much of a change you require for significance. Uh, for a clinically significant result. So we we sort of understand what that means when we're using these semi-quantitative scores. Um, and I suppose that if all of the all the digital AI pathology is doing is is replicating what what a human pathologist could do and giving you a pseudo semi-quantitative score, um, one could use the same criteria, I suppose. But uh, for instance, in the in the imaging world uh, of radiology, where you're measuring fat quantity on MRI scans, one of the issues that they had to confront in using um, that as an endpoint in a clinical study was to understand how much change was was significant and whether that was the same along the whole length of the continuous reading of of steatosis or whether it meant something different at different levels um, it was interesting to me that when we first started doing nash trials when we were looking at when people look at alt responses um, it was a different criteria than what we used for viral hepatitis, which was typically normalization of the enzymes. Now people were not talking about normalization. They were talking about a 50% decrease or, or something of that order. Um, so, you know, I think it's very important to understand how much change is, is meaningful if you're going to go to a continuous measure, which is what the promise of AI digital pathology is the, to give us not only more reproducible data, but data on a continuous scale. Um, and it might be able to detect very small changes, but those changes may not be meaningful. Uh, so I think that 
one of the things that we need to do in the science of the area is to understand how much change is really meaningful and how much change overcomes the sampling variability that that Pierre mentioned um, and you know how much change is meaningful in the long run for the patient and that's I think what the FDA will really uh, be what what they will really care about. Thank you Dr. Kleiner. Actually your answer builds very nicely onto the next question which is uh, the foundation of accelerated approval based on traditional liver histology was the association of uh, histopathological changes, especially fibrosis stage, with the clinical outcomes. What do you think, is the question to the panel, what do you think of plans to test the same association for digital pathology readout with clinical outcomes? Such an association would uh, provide a very strong support for a fully quantitative digital pathology tool, especially for its statistical properties, whether the statistical properties are superior to the human scores. What do you think of that question, or what would be your comment to that question? I guess I could start. Yes, please. I guess, you know, my answer to that question would have, again, a lot to do with not, not only showing that there's a relationship, because I think that that would not be hard if, if you took, say, fibrosis and you had some scale of measuring fibrosis. Um, but we already know that, at least with respect to stage, um, the way that most non-invasive fibrosis tools work and, and even digital AI pathology uh, works to a certain extent is that it measures the dramatic changes that you see late in the disease course as things progress to bridging and cirrhosis better than it detects early changes. And, you know, whether that results in a kind of a nonlinear uh, scale of measuring fibrosis digitally or having two scales, one for the early part of the disease and one for the later part of the disease. Um, I think that when you analyze that data with respect to outcome, you have to take into consideration that change at the high end of the scale may not be the same as change at the low end of the scale. And, um, and to, to make the assumption that it is linear over the whole length of the scale might not be correct. And so I think it's, it's important that when we when we look at these outcome, when we look at any of the outcome measures that we try and discern whether or not things are truly um, proportional along the whole length of the measurement, uh, as opposed to, you know, some sort of nonlinear association with change of the outcome measure and, or change of the, uh, the physical property and the outcome measure. Um, so that's that's the sort of data that I would like to see, um, rather than just say an odds ratio, which is usually the way that these things are reported. That doesn't give you any sense of the mathematical relationship between uh, the change in the in the histologic feature and the outcome. Thank you, Dr. Kleiner. So perhaps, Dr. Goodman, what do you think of this question, and how do you see that possibility? Well, I'm not aware of any studies that are ongoing uh, 
to look at this. Um, and, uh, you know, the FDA said they would love to see them, but, uh, you know, it might not be in the interest of uh, industry to uh, try to push these things into, into long-term studies. It just gives them more that they have to do and more expense. It would give them, um, I suppose, if, if they could come up with something that um, the FDA would accept, that it, it, it would, in the long run, save them a lot of uh, effort and, and uh, resources. But the problem is that the drugs that have been uh, studied so far haven't worked very well. And uh, you, can, you can look at uh, spontaneous changes in the, in, in, in the placebo group, which uh, tend to be the same as uh, much in the, in the uh, drugs that haven't worked, and they, they show a, a quite a bit of variability. Some patients improve, some get worse. So th those are all things that haven't, haven't really contributed to uh, what, what David was talking about, showing where these things uh, would be of any real uh, practical use. So I'm a little bit pessimistic about uh, this for the time being. We have to come up with better uh, treatments and then better ways of assessing them and then long time to uh, see how, how that uh, changes the natural history. Or perhaps this could be addressed in some of the international cohorts that are assembling large database of patients that are followed serially. Um, Dr. Bedosa, Pierre, what do you think of that question? Well, if, I think that most have been said already. I, I, uh, I know that in many NASH clinical trials, there was some uh, uh, samples that was used for uh, that were used for uh, digital uh, AI pathology, especially with histo index. But uh, so far, I don't see any outcome of that. Uh, and I think that one of the main issues is that what uh, David said about uh, how much a change in any type of uh, AI uh, pathology, uh, how much change is relevant, clinically relevant, you know. Uh, and as far as we don't know that, I'm not sure that we can use that uh, as a main uh, marker of the evolution of the disease. Thank you. And there is a, an additional question to, to this one. So more to clarify, which clinical setting do you think would be informative to correlate the results, the assessment of digital pathology with long-term clinical outcomes? Would this be longitudinal studies of cohorts of NASH patients or a combined analysis of several trials, even from different compounds and different sponsors? Or would that be a longitudinal study of patients who underwent some years ago bariatric surgery and then assessed the changes in the liver following the bariatric surgery? Uh, if you could give a quick answer to these options, what do you think? Yeah, I think it would have to be longitudinal studies uh, from looking at the natural history. I think very uh, and, and with. If you're going to use treatment trials and you have to include placebo for comparison, and I think that would be a problem with bariatric surgeries. You don't have the placebo. You only have what happens to these patients over time without the comparison to without having the, had the bariatric surgery. Yep. Um, Dr. Kleiner, what do you think of what I, clinical setting do you think would be informative in that respect? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with with Zach. I mean, you you have to start with the natural history of the disease before you 
start looking at situations in which someone has intervened in that natural history, even if the intervention is not thought to be effective, um, you don't really know what what's changing. So, so you do have to start with cohorts of patients who are basically not being treated. And Dr. Bedosa? Well, I, I, I agree with both uh, Zach and David said, um, I, I don't think I have anything else to, to add to. No, 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 more, no further comment, yeah. Thank you. Well, that, that means that you're all three in, in consensus on, on, on that point, certainly. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm glad to say that we have come to the end of part one of the podcast, and we still have quite a few questions to discuss. So please do stay tuned and we will be releasing part two of this podcast in the following week. Thank you for listening and see you in part two of this podcast.